and read from Leviticus chapter 25. Thanks, James, for uh, leading us in that uh, chapter this morning. The Sabbath year. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land, I am going to give you the land itself. Must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourselves, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary residents who live among you as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. The year of Jubilee. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven, seven, times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath year amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sound everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall, have a, it shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family properly, is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. It's only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people and on the basis of number, basis of the number of the years since the Jubilee, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am, your, I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruits, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The land must be sold permanent. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in the land in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land you hold a possession. You hold as a possession. You must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some to the, of their property, the nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own proper property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay the buyer... They do not require the means to repay what, what, sold, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned to the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. 
Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. But during that time, the seller may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house is in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned. It is not to be returned in the jubilee. But houses in villages without walls around them are to be considered as belongings to the open country. They can be redeemed, and they are to be redeemed in the jubilee. The Levites always have the right to redeem their house in the Levitical towns which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, a house sold in the town they hold and is to be returned in the jubilee, because the houses in the towns of the Levites are the property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to that to their towns must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. If any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sell themselves unto you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their, town, to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I have brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you, and from them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and the members of their clans born into your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property, and you can make them slaves for life, but you must not rook over their fellow Israelites ruthlessly. If a foreign resident among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They can then, they and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price for their release is to be based on the rate paid to a hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay them. They must pay for their redemption a larger share of the price for them. They paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must, not, you must see to it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as, my ser- to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thanks, James. <clears throat> Well, land is the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing 
that lasts. So says Gerald O'Hara in that great southern epic, Gone with the Wind. It's a favourite of mine, I don't know about you. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it or read it. He says, to anyone with a drop of Irish blood in them, the land they live on is like their mother. That's how important it is. And it's a popular sentiment, isn't it? Even today, land and property, still one of the most significant investments in the Western world. And the idea is the same. It it doesn't go away. It's always there. Bloody wars have been fought and countless feuds have erupted over land and boundaries. Not to mention the persecution that has accompanied that delightful notion that is land reform. As I work my way through a podcast on history's worst dictators, I'm re-shocked over and over by the atrocities that have been committed by communist tyrants against landowners and the like. It is, it is mind-boggling stuff. Not that I'm here, of course, to argue a, a, a capitalist libertarian viewpoint. That's not the idea. But in this age-old argument of economics and property, uh, Leviticus 25 and 27 speaks directly to it. And what we read there is radical, to say the least. You might even say that it is revolutionary, but without all the, the violence that goes with that. Although we don't actually know whether the Sabbath years and the Jubilee law was actually ever practiced in Israel. We don't really have evidence of it happening. I think that's a bit sad because there's some wonderful stuff here. But I'm not here to advocate for a biblical system of economics uh, to place on a world that operates on a completely different framework. Uh, History tells us that that's not the best thing to do. It doesn't usually end very well. What I'm here to do is to identify some core principles that we Christians can consider to apply, which will help us express the gospel in our lives and the kingdom in this world. And so the first one of these is this, God is the owner and we are tenants. In many ways, this is the underlying key to everything in this chapter and beyond. As it says in verse 23 there, the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. You are aliens in this place. And strangers can actually be interpreted as temporary residents or tenants. That's what you are on my land, God says. And this is critical to our thinking, to our worldview. We are not the owners. God is. Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And he goes on to talk about how people belong to him as well, not just land. We are simply stewards and caretakers. We are tenants on the Lord's land. He is the ultimate landlord. We are custodians. And that's why for Israel, Uh, The sale and the purchase of land was not to be based on the land itself. God says over and over, it's not yours. It was based on the number of crops until the next jubilee. Again, it's radical stuff. The land was borrowed. And I think this principle really matters. When we think about uh, capitalist and socialist ideologies, you know, one says that you can own land and property outright. 
that it's some sort of inherent right and it's yours and you can defend it with a gun if you want to. The other says nobody should own anything, but it should somehow all belong to the people collectively. Uh, What that actually looks like, nobody has any real idea. But the Bible tells us that we can be steward owners under the true owner, which is God. And that everything else is to flow from that. And so this principle also matters when we talk about things like indigenous land rights. Now, we can never dismiss the complexity of cultural relationship to the land. We can't dismiss the problems of colonialism and the atrocities of history. But I would say that one thing is really simple, and that ownership itself, well, it belongs to the Lord. It belongs to God. Now, of course, God is very deeply concerned with how we steward the land and especially how land is passed from one party to the next. That's what this chapter is about. And that is inextricably linked to how we treat our fellow human beings. And I think it's safe to say that in history, the way land has passed from one party to the next is 99% of the time not great. But God's ownership is ultimate. It's ultimate. And so again, it's, it's about the holiness that we, we considered last week. That Christians are not to be greedy capitalists who accumulate holdings for the sake of it. That Christians are not to be entitled socialists who steal from the rich and give to the poor. That Christians are not to be woke progressives who jump on whatever the popular bandwagon is. That we are to be Christians. Followers of Christ. Stewards and servants of God. So why don't we continue exploring what that looks like. And the second principle, it's that God provides for us so that we can trust in Him. If you look at verse 6 and verse 21, you see how God planned to provide for His people during the years of rest. Uh, He would provide bumper crops in the sixth year, more than enough so that they could store it and it would last for the following two years or even three if it was a jubilee, as well as the natural yield of the land. He says, whatever is wildly kind of yielded and, and given, you can, you can have. And it's yours to eat on while the land rests. See, because the Sabbath year was not just a rest for the land itself, because God cared for His creation, but it was also a way for the people to remember who provides for them, who looks after them, and to trust Him. A reminder that their security was not in their possessions or in their wealth or in their health for that matter, but in God. And this is, I think, such a hard lesson for us Westerners to learn. Dare I say, us capitalists. It's hard enough to learn that the house that you have bought, if you own a house, is not actually yours. Some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, it's the bank's. But that's not what I'm talking about. It's not yours, it's God's. It's not the bank's either, it's God's. It belongs to Him. 
It's hard to think that way, isn't it? But then on top of that, to learn that your future security is not in what you accumulate, not in what you save, not in what you build up. Well, that thinking is like hardwired into our cultural psyche. That's just the way that it's done in our world. Earn money, pay off your mortgage, invest, grow your portfolio, get a bigger property, build your nest egg, leave a legacy. Sit comfortable. We're all doing it, aren't we? We're all on that track. We're all thinking like the world around us. And I put my hand up and I say, yep, me too. But what have God said to us? Take every seventh year off work and volunteer for a mission or for the church. And you know what? I'll provide for you. Would we do it? What if he said to us, you know, when you turn 50, give away your savings. Just give them away. You don't need them. And I'll provide for you. Would we do it? Now, I'm not saying that you should do that, necessarily. But I am asking how much of your trust is in what you have or what you might gain in the future. It struck me as Tim preached a couple of weeks ago on storms that we might face, just how good we are at avoiding them. How few opportunities we actually allow ourselves, and I'm speaking as much about myself, how few opportunities we allow ourselves to really trust in Him, to really put ourselves out there. Are we willing to put our livelihoods on the line or our property plans on the line or our savings on the line for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom? That's what the disciples did. To follow Jesus, they left everything. A livelihood in fishing, a lucrative tax business, all sorts of things, homes, security, everything. Are we willing to do the same? When Michael Card sings about that, what the disciples left, he says, every heart needs to be set free from possessions that hold it so tight. Because freedom's not found in the things that we own. With Jesus, our only possession, we, well then giving becomes our delight and we can't imagine the freedom that we find from the things we leave behind. God provides for us so we can trust in Him. And see, then I think it's this next principle that then really tests us. Really tests, as it did for the rich young ruler, are we willing to put it into practice? God helps the poor and we can do likewise. See, in many ways, the year of Jubilee is all about protecting the poor. It's all about preventing people from being exploited and oppressed. As God says, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. And I love that. It's, it's, it's such an encouragement, but also there's a little bit of a warning there, isn't there? Fear your God. And so God puts these fail-safes in place. Uh, firstly, in most sales of property, there would be an allowed year for redemption because people wouldn't really sell what they have. They would give it to the next generation But if they came on hard times, they might have to. 
And so God says, allow for a year where they could buy back what they sold if they came out of that financial trouble. And if not, secondly, the property would ultimately be returned to them or to their descendants in the year of Jubilee. Uh, Unless it was in a walled city, uh, because that's talking about a house without agricultural land. But in these ways and, and by these commands, God was saying, no one should remain impoverished. No one should be stuck in the cycle of poverty. Even if someone becomes so poor that they have to sell themselves into servitude, they are still to be released in the year of Jubilee, if not before because they've paid off their debt. It was never to be permanent unless there was a mutual agreement. And on top of that, slaves, particularly Israelite ones, were to be treated exactly as hired workers, as employees. Honestly, fairly, equitably. Just like the the land value would be based on the number of crops until Jubilee, for the slave, the value would be based on, well, how many uh, years until Jubilee and what are the hired worker rates and calculate all that up. Basically like the minimum wage or something similar. And now while we can't go into all the ins and outs of slavery in the Bible and the controversies there, we can say that Israel were to do things so differently to the other nations. So servitude was a way for effectively helping those in poverty. It wasn't for taking advantage, it was for helping. Uh, It was to function like employment rather than slavery. No one was to be sold for that matter. They were to be treated like the rest of the household, definitely not ruthlessly, but like part of the family, loved and cared for. That's the idea. And it was never to be permanent. Ultimately, it was not to be necessary at all, but only for dire straits. But it was very, very, very different to the way that the pagan nations approached it, to the way that many nations since that time have approached it and still do today. Israel were to be holy. And even though there were different rules for foreign slaves and ones that we, you know, we wrestle with, we do need to consider this principle in verse 35. It says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger. He puts a higher standard for Israelites, but he also says help them as you would help and show hospitality to foreigners and strangers. And who does he call foreigners and strangers right back at the beginning? Israel. You're foreigners and strangers in my land, he says. After all, Israel were to be constantly reminded that they were once slaves in a foreign nation and they were oppressed and they were treated ruthlessly and horrifically. But they were redeemed by God. They were set free. And they were never to treat others the way Egypt had treated them. It was an almost eternal lesson for them. That's not how you do it. For Israel, all people were to be helped and cared for. All people's needs were to be seen to. 
It doesn't mean it necessarily happened and the prophets are full of uh, condemnation for when Israel would exploit and oppress. But if we need any convincing, let's not forget the wonderful words of Isaiah 61 that Jesus quotes when he rocks up in the synagogue that day in Luke 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, to proclaim jubilee. Good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners and the oppressed. Sight for the blind. Does this mean the poor who are sidelined by wealthy exploiters? Absolutely. Does it mean those who are stuck in generational cycles of poverty? You bet. And does it mean the poor in spirit and the spiritually blind? Well, yeah, that too. Without a doubt. Jesus comes to do it all. And the gospel, it radicalizes the way that we think about possessions and the way we think about generosity and charity. It is at the heart of who we are as Christians. The kingdom is not communist. The kingdom is not capitalist. The kingdom is not any of these things. It is anti-greed. It is anti-entitlement. It's not about rights and ownership and self-protection. It's about generosity. It's about servant heartedness. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about charity and love. The kingdom It's about Jesus and his gospel. And that brings me to the next point. <clears throat> that God is gracious so we can be grateful and generous. Now, I haven't spoken much at this point about chapter 27 of Leviticus, which is the last chapter in Leviticus. But I do just want to highlight here how in that chapter, God mercifully provides methods of redemption, even for our weak commitments. So the chapter's all about people being able to make vows to God uh, and to dedicate certain things, to give certain things to God, things like uh, people, animals, land, to God um, as an act of generosity and giving. And so they could do that, but then God, in His grace, He provides uh, what He calls a redemption price so that people could buy those things back. So instead of giving an actual person uh, to the work of the temple, in fact, if everyone did that in those days, uh, the temple would have been overloaded with people. So instead, people could give uh, like an equivalent amount of money. Uh, Instead of the animal that they might have promised, they could instead buy that back. Or the land, the same thing. It's a gracious uh, sort of clause, I guess, where people could buy back what they had committed. The only exceptions were... Uh, the firstborn animal from the, from the flock and the regular tithe because they already belong to God. They belong to Him from the outset. And these vows, they were about dedicating and giving that went beyond the firstborn and the tithe. And I've mentioned this before, but uh, often if we approach giving 
in a legalistic way. We talk about 10%, 10%, 10%. And yet there were all these things in the Old Testament where people could give more, either to God and his work, to the temple, to others, uh, so much more that we're able to give. But the principle is God was generous in his dealings with his people so that they could be grateful and generous towards him and, of course, each other. And we see this ultimately expressed in Jesus, as we prayed about earlier. The law that we've been looking at here in Leviticus, and the law entirely is is like the ultimate commitment that, that is required of us, and yet one that we cannot keep. The covenant, our, our sort of side of the covenant, is a vow that we fail to uphold. And the redemption price is far too high for us to pay. It's either we live the life of righteousness or we suffer condemnation. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he pays it for us in both ways, the life of righteousness condemnation. He redeems our lives. He fulfills our commitment. He is the redemption price paid. And so our response, firstly, is gratefulness, gratitude. It's no longer just about obedience because we need to live up to the terms of our side of the bargain or the deal. It's about thankfulness and gratitude. It's about joy over God's grace. It's, it's the, the reality that He's given us everything. And we can just give thanks and, and live the way that He seeks us to live. All that stuff that we talked about, you know, accepting our place as tenants, trusting in God's provision, helping the needy, we do that with gratitude and joy. That's our motivation. It's not obligation. It's not, I have to do this. It's it's because, look what Jesus has done for me. And we also respond, secondly, with generosity. God is incredibly generous with us, giving even his only son, and so we can be generous with him, with others. We don't have to be like the world who accumulates and hoards and builds up and stores and then frets and freaks out when when any of it's lost, because without that we've got nothing. What we have, we can give away. Wisely, but we can give it away. Because our security is in God. Our security is in His provision. So our attitude is, you've heard it before, gratitude And our practice is generosity. That's how we roll. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's who we are. If you want to know, if you want to do a little bit of self-testing right now, you know, am I thinking like a Christian? If you're asking yourself that, well then ask yourself, am I living in thankfulness for what Jesus has given me? Every day. Am I thinking about what I've been given in the grace of God? Am I living in that, dwelling in that? And if you're wondering, you know, am I acting like a Christian? Am I living like a Christian? 
Well, then ask yourself, am I being generous towards God and others? Or am I just focused on me? Because if either of those come up, no, we need to revisit those other principles over and over and over. God is the owner. We are just tenants. We are stewards. God provides for me. I can trust in him. God helps the needy. I can do likewise. God is gracious. I can be grateful and generous. But there's one last principle that I just want to finish on this morning. God promises rest so we can have unfailing hope. Because the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee, they ultimately point to God's promise of rest. And I'd be doing these chapters a disservice if not to talk about it. The rest that he gave to creation on the seventh day. A continual rest that was meant to continue from the seventh day onwards. The rest that he wanted us to live in from the beginning. In him to enjoy, to rest, to find contentment. The rest that he seeks to provide for us, even in our sinful distrust. Even in something like the law, which we struggle with. The rest that he gives purely in Jesus, who says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And the rest that he promises when Jesus returns, that eternal rest. Rest from all that desire to accumulate and earn and achieve. None of us knows what true rest really feels like. In our minds, it is always intermingled with stress and self-oppression and even slavery to our circumstances or to our age or to our financial situation or whatever it might be. And rest from all of that, rest in the deepest part of our hearts, that is something we can only dream of. And yet that's God's plan for us. That's his promise right from the start. And it will come to fulfillment. The year of the Lord's favour, that's yet to be fully realised. In some ways, we think maybe it was never practised because in so many ways it is still to come. Jesus is our jubilee, yes, but the true rest is still coming. And so we wait and we hope and we anticipate And while we do, we live our lives in the light of that amazing freedom. Trusting. Serving. Loving. And giving. Let's pray. Look, God, we're honest. If we're honest, we're challenged by your word for your people. 
even here way back at the beginning in the Old Testament for your people Israel. We're challenged by the way that you ordain things for them. We're challenged by the principles of trusting in your provision, of being generous because of your grace, of looking after the needs of others. And we're privileged, Lord, because we see in Jesus just the way that you have fulfilled all of it. That he who was rich became poor for our sake. So that we who ultimately are stricken and and completely poor might be rich in life, in eternity. And Lord, we just want to ask that you will help us to live in response of that wonderful grace that Jesus has shown to continue trusting you and to continue being grateful and generous in our dealings with you and with others. Lord, rid us of selfishness, selfish ambition, selfish gain. Rid us of the idea that our security is in what we have what we think we own and set us free from all of that, Lord. From the worldly worries, the worldly ambitions so that we can focus 100% on Christ, on the kingdom, on the gospel. Give us true freedom, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to put those things on the line when you call us. To leave it behind. To step out in faith. And to find new levels of joy for the ways you give. In Jesus' name, amen.